John chapter 14 and from verse 8 through to verse 21. As you remember, we're in the series in John's Gospel where we're looking at how Jesus is responding to the various questions that his disciples are asking him as he is leaving. And last week we looked at the issue, the question that is very common, very prevalent today. Why is it that Jesus is the only way to God? And the answer we saw to that was, in a sense, that he is God. So to ask whether he's the only way to God is, well, he is God, that's why. But of course there's a follow-up question to that which is, how do you know it's all true? How do you know he really is God? How do you know that that is true? And um, that's the question that we're going to look at this morning. And so it begins in verse 8 of John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive." Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is God's word. Amen. Do please grab a seat, sit down. How do we know it is all true? Philip had been with uh, Jesus for a long time by now, and yet even Philip can say to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. It's one thing for Jesus to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, as we looked at last week. It's another thing to be really convinced that it is actually true, that you know that for sure. And of course, many of us ask those kind of questions from time to time. Perhaps you are going through a especially difficult season in your life. And you're wondering whether all those things that you have hoped for, because you're following Christ, are actually guaranteed after all. How do you know it is all true? Or maybe um, you have more intellectual questions. You've been wondering whether actually intellectually, credibly, you can trust this thing called Christianity. Lord, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Will you come and show us? How do we know it is all true? 
In many ways, what Philip is asking for is an experience of God. Of course, it's natural enough for us to ask that sort of question. Indeed, in our modern society, it is the way that we discover any kind of truth. It was David Hume in his uh, famous book from a long time ago that shaped the modern thinking, an essay on human understanding. David Hume made the case that the only way that you can know what is true is by either what you directly see or by what can be deduced from logic. Of course, critics of David Hume's book have said that that argument itself is neither of those things. But nonetheless, we do want to know for sure that it is true. We want an experience. Isn't that how we discover how things are true? If we want to discover more about space, we explore space. July 21st, 1969, Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He discovered more about space by experiencing space. When this country was expanding to the western coast, Lewis and Clark went and found out more. They experienced more about it. How do we know it is really all true when Jesus was here so long ago and when God is so far away? How do we actually know it is all true? Well, the answer to that, of course, is not so much our search for man as God's search for us. C.S. Lewis, who grew up as an atheist and became an atheist as a teenager, did not believe in God, once said that after he became a Christian, an atheist cannot guard his faith closely enough, for he had become now a Christian and God had searched him out. He used this illustration. How is it possible, he said, that Hamlet, in the Shakespeare play Hamlet, How is it possible that Hamlet would ever encounter Shakespeare, the author of the play? The answer, C.S. Lewis said, the only way is if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And similarly, what we're looking at here is Jesus is saying is that God himself has written himself into the story of our lives. And that's how we can know for sure. There are three ways that Jesus explains that in this passage here. First of all, through what Jesus himself has said and done. Then through what Jesus' followers say and do. And then through what the Spirit is saying and doing in you, if you are one of his followers. So first of all, what Jesus has said and done and this is verses 12 uh, verses um, 9 through to 11 what Jesus has said and done and in these verses we see here that Jesus answers Philip's question of course it's actually a statement that Philip makes but behind it is a question Jesus answers Philip's question by really, in a sense, come on, Philip, haven't you been with me? Don't you know me? Surely you know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Haven't I been teaching you already all these things through what Jesus has said? And Jesus also says through what he has done, the works. If you don't believe me, at least believe on account of the works or the signs or what he has done. The the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the turning water into wine through what Jesus 
has said and done, through what Jesus has said and done, you know, as it were, that the author of the whole story of the universe has written himself into the story of our lives. And therefore, we can know for sure it is true. Now, you may say, but there are many people who have come to different conclusions about this. Famously, Mahatma Gandhi, great Indian leader, said that he almost became a Christian, but not quite. And perhaps you know other people who have looked into these things, but are not themselves Christians. And so it seems to you that when you say it's through what Jesus has said and done, not everyone makes that conclusion. But you see, the question is not what they think, it's what you think. We have to, as it were, dismiss the committee of they, what they say and do, and focus on what Jesus has said and done. Not what they say. Gandhi only focused on what Jesus said, not so much on what he did. He just thought he was a good moral teacher, but did not face up to the claims that Jesus made, that he was really God, nor the miracles that he did. But if you focus on what Jesus said and did, it becomes increasingly hard to avoid the conclusion that the author of the story has written himself into the story of our lives, the story of the universe, what Jesus has said and done. Dismiss the committee of day and face up to what Jesus has said and done. Maybe it's not so much all these intellectual arguments I said at the beginning is a personal thing. How can you trust that God has really written himself into the story of your life when you're struggling with these issues, these mental problems, these personal sufferings, these issues in your family? You've got all these questions about your life. How can you how can you really accept that these things are all true, given all this that is going on. Well, again, if I may, let me encourage you this morning to not only dismiss the committee of they, but dismiss, as it were, the gang of they and all the things that they did to you. And instead, focus on what Jesus has said and done, ultimately, of course, at the cross, where he suffered and died for you. Now, many Christian apologists, many people who answer this question, how do we know that it's all true, just conclude there. And yet Jesus himself does not. He has another point which comes like this. Not only what Jesus himself has said and done, but what Jesus' followers say and do. And this is from verses 12 through to verse 14. And really, if you're looking for surprising things in the passage this morning, here are some just extraordinary things that Jesus says. Whoever believes in me will do greater things than these. And whatever you ask in my name, it will be done to you, done for you. These followers of Jesus then must be the most extraordinary people. Of course, we've got all sorts of questions about what it is that Jesus could mean by those two ideas. That those who believe in him will do even greater things than he did. And whatever you ask for in Jesus' name, it will be given 
for you. What does he mean by these things? Well, first of all, that whoever believes in him will do even greater things than these. What he means by this is what indeed has and is happening. So as you read the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts, and you find that this message of Jesus, which was confined in Jesus' life just to him and his friends and disciples, and yes, the crowds, but in one country, then through those believers in Jesus was taken from Jerusalem to Rome, the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom was taken from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to Rome, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's this huge expansion of the message of Jesus. But it's a little more than that. It's not just simply an issue of quantity. D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, put it like this. Jesus is not just talking about raw numbers. He says there's an eschatological hinge that has turned. Eschatological simply means about the last times. So when Jesus came, we entered in, he announced the kingdom of God is at hand. We entered into a new stage of the kingdom of God in which we are now residing in, living in, and if we're Christians, a part of. So it's not just simply an issue of quantity, it's a categorical shift that now we can do even greater things than uh, he did. Let me give you an example. For instance, who would you say was the, uh, the greatest basketball player of all time? Well, we're in Chicago, so I guess there's only one answer. There we go. Michael Jordan. Probably the greatest basketball player of all time. Certainly, if you're in Chicago, you would think so. But how would you compare Michael Jordan to um, Naismith, who invented basketball? Well, it's, it's a different category, isn't it? Michael Jordan couldn't have played basketball if basketball had not been invented. And somewhat similarly, Jesus, the author and perfecter, for he is the Alpha and Omega, the author and perfecter of our faith, through his death and resurrection, opens the doors for the kingdom that now is proclaimed to the furthest corners of the earth. And what that means is that you, Christian, if you really are a Christian, you're not just ordinary. Every Christian is super ordinary. I don't mind whether you're, you're, you're helping in children's ministries or with the disabilities ministries. Or, or, or You have every reason this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, to be amazingly encouraged because you are in this new category of the kingdom of God. And in that sense, you're doing even greater things than Jesus did. What is more, he says, when you pray in my name... That will be done for you. Now, what does he mean by that? Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that the, the phrase, in Jesus' name, is a sort of magical incantation that you put at the end of your prayers to make sure you get it. A, a, a sort of a abracadabra, in Jesus' name. And if you don't say it, then you won't get it. No, he doesn't mean that. I remember one time when we were illustrating this and we had a chapel service 
And we had a, a, a young boy stand, sit, kneel at the front of the chapel and pray. And unknown to the, uh, the teenagers at the time in the chapel, we'd gone up to the, the, the ceiling and we'd taken out one of the lights and we had a football ready to drop from the ceiling. And the young boy was praying for a football and nothing was happening. And then he said, in Jesus' name, and the football dropped. Is that what Jesus means? Da, 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 amen, nothing happens. Da, 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 in Jesus' name, you've got it. No. What does he mean? What he means is the same as your signature. When you do something in someone else's name, you are representing them. It's similar to what we say when we say we're praying in Jesus' will, what Jesus wants. It's a little bit different, but it's similar. When we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is this is something that Jesus could sign off on. This is the sort of thing that Jesus would say. This is the sort of thing that Jesus would pray. This is the kind of thing that you could have Jesus' signature at the bottom of. Now, what an encouragement to get to know Jesus better. For when you get to know who Jesus is, and you get to know who, what Jesus wants, then you can pray with such power. If you know how, as it were, to put Jesus' signature at the bottom of your prayers. So the question we have this morning is, how do you know that these things are all true? What Jesus has said and done, but now what Jesus' followers, these superordinary, extraordinary people in this new category of the new kingdom, what they say and do. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you're wondering whether it's all true, would you pray that you would meet a follower of Jesus and really get to know them? I remember I invited one friend along to a Christian talk to hear what I thought was a particularly gifted Christian speaker. And this speaker gave a a really phenomenal uh, talk about the meaning of Christianity and the truth of Christianity. My friend, though, after the talk, went up to meet the Christian speaker. And she was so struck by who he was that afterwards she said nothing about what he said but only about who he was as a person. When you meet a real Christian, you're meeting someone extraordinary. You say, well, I've never met anyone like that. Well, pray that you would. And there are people around like that today. We hear all this bad news about Christians and Christian leaders and the rest, but there are godly Christian men and women around today. One example that's been in the news over the last year or so is Andrew Brunson, suffered in Turkey in prison. Has just been a faithful witness. These extraordinary people, Jesus' followers. One of the ways you can know that it really is all true. But then we come to the last thing that Jesus says here, which you'll find uh, from verse 15 through to verse 21. And here Jesus is emphasizing the work of the Spirit, which he will throughout these chapters. And I've put it like this, not only what Jesus has said and done, not only what Jesus' followers say and do, but what the Spirit is saying and doing 
in you if you really are a follower of Jesus. And here in these verses, Jesus is emphasizing the work of the Spirit. But to understand that, we've got to understand some of the ways that Jesus describes the work of the Spirit that that trip people up and they don't naturally always completely understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. For instance, he talks about the Spirit as a helper or as it's sometimes translated, a counselor or even in the old King James, a comforter. This word is used frequently throughout this chapter, so we need to understand what it means. What does it mean when Jesus says that the Spirit is a helper or a counselor? Well, the word behind that is the word that, if you were pronouncing in English, you would say was paraclete. And that word has a sense of coming alongside and then calling forward. In other words, the Spirit comes alongside us and then calls us forward. In that sense, the Spirit is a helper. In that sense, the Spirit is a counselor. You might almost say the Spirit is a coach. The Spirit comes alongside the Christian and says, you can do this. Together we've got this. You can do it. And so when the Spirit is powerfully at work in an individual Christian or in a church, there is always a sense of, it's possible. Why? Because we have the Spirit of the living God. Of course it's possible. You can do this. Comes alongside and calls us forward to live in this kingdom of God that Jesus has established and is expanding today. You can do this. But then Jesus says the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Again, how do you know that all these things are true? The Spirit comes along and opens our eyes and softens our hearts. You will not see the truth unless the Spirit of truth helps you to see the truth. And then Jesus says, because I live, you will live. What does he mean by that? What he means by that, so Jesus is leaving. He's leaving to die on the cross and then rise again, ascend to be with the Father, and then he poured out his Spirit upon his followers. So because he lives, you will live if you believe in him. That is, you'll have his Spirit and you'll come spiritually alive. You will live and then on the last day you'll be raised again to live with him forever. Because he lives, you will live. And then in perhaps the most extraordinary thing that he says in this whole passage, he says, then you'll know that the Father is in me and I am in you and you're in me. What an amazing thing to say. In other words, the real follower of Jesus has the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now, how do you know all these things are true? By what Jesus has said and done. By what Jesus' followers are saying and doing. The real church of the living God and the real Christians that you pray that you will come across and meet. But now here there's something else. 
that the author of the story has written himself into the story of the universe through Jesus' work, through the living church, the body of Christ, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is at work now in you if you are a real Christian. That now you love Jesus, your heart is soft to Jesus, and you don't always perfectly obey him, for none of us are perfect, and we all sin, but this side of heaven, we are not perfect. But now, because of the Spirit of Christ, our hearts are soft and we want to obey His commandments, for we love Him. The gift of the Spirit at work in you. That's one of the ways you know it is all true, for the Spirit is at work in you. Now, there is a great tendency, I think, in this regard for churches to run to either extreme. Indeed, you could say the whole history of the Western church in the last 50 years has been going to extremes on this issue of the work of the Spirit. It's just such a common tendency of human nature in general to run to an extreme. I've always liked how Martin Luther put it. Martin Luther described how human nature always tends to run to an extreme. He said it's a bit like a drunk man. He described how a drunk man will go to a pub and drink and get drunk and then make his way home. And of course, in those days, they had to ride home on a horse rather than in a car. So got, got on his horse, this drunk man, and then riding down the road and then would fall off on one side, dust himself up, get back on the horse, ride a little further down the road, and then fall off on the other side. And Luther said, human nature is like that. We tend to run to either one extreme or the other extreme. Nowhere is that more the case than with the work of the Holy Spirit. But here there is this perfect balance. What Jesus has said and done, his word. What Jesus' followers are saying and doing, the living church of God, the body of Christ. But now here is the power of the Spirit. What the Spirit is saying and doing in you if you are a true follower of Jesus. Isn't that so needed among us? One 18th century pastor called Joseph Hart once said this, He said that there is no way that simply having devotion. He said, vain is our best devotion, even on false foundation built. True religion is more than just notion. It's more than just an idea. Something must be known and felt. The Spirit of God at work in you. Do you have that? If you do not, perhaps it's no wonder you're not sure whether these things are really all true. Let me leave you with this um, story at the end. One of the children's books that I love um, the most is a children's book called The Secret Garden. Uh, it's been made into various TV programs, probably movies over the years. Some of them are slightly strange. The book itself is slightly less strange, and I'm thinking of the book. In the story, there is a uh, young boy 
who uh, apparently is an invalid. He, he cannot get out of bed. He thinks he's going to die. He, he lives in this huge English mansion with servants and every possible privilege you could think of, and yet he's confined to his bed. He's miserable. He thinks he's going to die. He's estranged from his father. They're both mourning the death of uh, the boy's mother. And then comes along another little girl. She's uh, come from India. She's come to stay with them because her parents have died. And that little girl spots what's really going on. That boy is not actually an invalid. He's emotionally, spiritually an invalid, but physically he's fine. And she begins to urge him on. Come on, you can do this. You can do this. She wheels him out in his wheelchair to the secret garden that she has discovered. And he takes a few steps forward and realizes he can walk. You can do this. And he does. But the the, the dad still is utterly unaware that anything has changed. He's a long way away, feeling more and more miserable for himself. And they, as it were, begin to pray. And the dad turns up into the secret garden and is amazed to discover that his boy can walk. Well, maybe you need to pray. C.S. Lewis, when he um, finally became a Christian, put it like this. He said, I finally gave in. See, it's not really about our search for God. It's about God's search for us. He is the living God. And he has risen himself into the story of the universe, into the story of your life. C.S. Lewis said that when people talk about man's search for God, he, before he became a Christian, used to think that was a bit like the mouse's search for the cat. He didn't want to find God, but God found him. And in Trinity term, that's the Oxford term from April through to June, the third term of the year, in Trinity term, 1929, C.S. Lewis said, I finally gave in and prayed. Perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. How do you know it's all true? Through what Jesus has said and done? through what Jesus' followers are saying and doing, and through what the Spirit is saying and doing in you. And maybe it's time for you to finally give in and pray. Well, let's pray then together. Will you uh, bow the knee before Jesus? He has written himself into the story of the life of this universe through what he said and did as recorded in his word that we have in front of us through the church that is all around us and through the spirit at work this morning. Will you bow the knee before him? And invite him into every corner of your heart.
Lord, when we think about these things biblically, we realize it's not so much how can we know whether it's all true, but how can we possibly any more resist the truth that you have written into the story of the universe? And we're just amazed, Lord. Can it be, can it be that you would give yourselves, yourself for us? And this amazing love, we, uh, we rejoice in and worship you because of this morning. Amen.